Well, good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what work and seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in in which those of us in our virtual studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. We're your hosts, Ron Beard and Liz Graves, and we hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And a reminder, we are recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. Maine's fishing communities are kind of first in line to deal with rising sea levels and warming ocean temperatures affecting their economies and their infrastructure. As Maine's port with the highest volume of lobster landing, Stonington is working hard for a more climate resilient future. And as a result of a wonderful community discussion they held in December, we've invited panel members from that session to share some of their experience and observations. We're so glad to have town manager Kathleen Billings and Linda Nelson, Director of Community Development, both of Stonington, and they're joined by Susie Arnold of the Island Institute and Carla Gunther from Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries for our conversation. Welcome to you all. Kathleen, maybe um, you and Linda can share a little bit about the town of Stonington. Many people who are listening to this radio broadcast will know and have visited Stonington, but Kathleen, how would you describe it to someone who perhaps hasn't visited Stonington? Well, um, you know, I think that, you know, as far as our town goes, I mean, we still try to maintain um, and, you know, still do. We are uh, primarily a fishing town. We make our uh, economic value out of the natural resources. Um, We still have a robust mix of, you know, lobster dealers. You know, we're Maine's top lobster port on landings. you know, through the lobster fishery and and other uh, species been, you know, pretty resilient through this whole process, tried to maintain, um, you know, through our policies and elected officials, you know, to try to keep some sort of balance, you know, commercial fishing is a number one priority. We do make, you know, a lot of our communities, you know, economic dollars through that, other businesses that support it. So that's a primary focus for us. I mean, we do have you know, the creative arts economy of construction, tourism certainly plays a part of it. But I mean, that's still kind of balanced out. And a lot of people, I'd have to say, come here because it's like one of the last, you know, the last places that you really see, you know, that kind of authentic fishing town. You can see the guys coming in, you can see the investment that goes on, you can see the product, you know, hauled off the island on Route 15. And you've you've been in your role as town manager for a few years now. I have. I started out as a town clerk, you know, back in the late 90s. And then um, I uh, had the opportunity to be the town manager in 2007. And, you know, and progressing up through, I'd have to say I wasn't in the occupation very long that, you know, there were some murmurings about, uh, you know, what was going to be coming to Um, some of these coastal communities, some more than others on, you know, the climate change and the sea level rise. And that's what started me on, you know, this pathway that we've had to do. 
Um, you know, largely the FEMA flood maps were going to get redone and by the state. And, you know, this is where, uh, you know, I really found out and by doing research with, you know, how Stoynton was going to be affected and so much and the costs of it. Um, we did some FEMA flood map appealing, um, not so much for the flood, you know, insurance costs for people or the effect, but more with the building out. If we had to be more resilient, we really needed to have an accurate take on, um, you know, if we were going to have to build seawalls, if we were going to have to build up because of the velocity of, you know, where they were tracking, we really needed to have good information for that. And we turned to Bob Gerber, and he was working uh, with Ransom Engineering, I think, at the time, you know, to get accurate FEMA flood mapping. And uh, once we did that, did the appeal, then, you know, we started on the process of planning for the sea level rise, you know, creating reserves through town meeting, um, doing a flood mapping assessment vulnerability study through GEI, um, an engineering firm in Portland, to really took a hard look at all of downtown stuff, whether it was drainage, whether it was our utilities, whether it was our commercial fish pier, you know, to see the level of cost and get some idea how we start, you know, assessing what was going to be coming to roads and whatever infrastructure that we had. Well, you've given us a real preview of what a town might go through to, to do its own assessment. And there are many other communities who are in the, involved in that process. Um, Linda Nelson, what would you add? You're the former director of the uh, Opera House there, um, one of the principal arts organizations um, on your island. But now you're a community development, economic development director for Stonington. What would you add to a little background and, and, and talk a little bit about your role? Thanks, Ron. I, I really want to talk about our copycat routine here. Um, you know, we, uh, the town of Stonington recognized as part of economic and community development that, um, you know, it really does take whole communities to move these solutions forward. These are huge issues, climate change, sea level rise, changes to our fisheries. You know, it's not like you can just change a policy or get a grant or, you know, fix something there. It's, it's a, it's integral to the whole community. So we did start this community conversation series that you referenced in December, even uh, flattering you guys very much with your idea by even stealing your name a little bit. And, um, and it had, it had a great response. There were, you know, the Stonington Opera House, which holds 250 people was, was almost full and people were really engaged with this conversation that we're replicating today and I think that that's um, indicative of what our coastal communities need. They need the engagement of all sectors of their communities. Um, and so that's one of the things. So bringing economic and community development together for Stonington, that's part of what um, my role has been. And it did start with the Opera House, you know, 25 years ago. And I've had the real um, honor and privilege of working closely with Kathleen since 2007 when she when she started and and when we started the um, Stonington Economic Development Committee we've we're watching change but more we're planning for change and um I think though there were three kind of light bulbs that went off um, for the audience and I, I look forward to hearing what Kathleen Susie and Carla say about this but um there were three kind of main areas of conversation that night that I think really attracted a lot of attention. And as you said, Kathleen just gave you a great preview of one of those, which is 
how much pre-planning it takes and how much planning it takes and foresight and thinking into the future for towns to address these large issues. And we are just really lucky because we've had a town manager and and a select board um, that has really been willing to think forward and, and been proactive about those things. It still doesn't save us from any of the problems that, you know, that these issues create, but it puts us in a lot better position in terms of how we respond. So that pre-planning, I think people were fascinated by that. I think there's a lot that all of us who live in coastal communities don't know about how things really work and that the radio shows like this or conversation series like the Talk of the Towns are great ways for people to kind of understand what what really works and how things really work and get and then and based on that they can get involved and the second area i think was a real light bulb for people was just from the fisheries perspective i mean we were very clear that this is how we approach these issues from as a fishing town um as kathleen said it's the heart and soul of our economy and we have the biggest working waterfront i think people don't realize that they come down to stonington it's beautiful it's an authentic 19th century village that cascades down to the largest archipelago in the state of Maine. And they don't realize that we've got three major harbors and over 300 individually owned and operated fishing boats that are working there. So the fisheries perspective, and uh, we're very lucky to partner always with the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, which is based in Stonington. And Carla brings a really great depth of knowledge to that and to what the future of that might look like from a scientific basis, from an ocean basis. And then our Susie and the Island Institute, they um the Island Institute sponsored our um is sponsoring the conversation series, the next one of which is February 7th, and we can talk about that later. But they but Susie and um Alexa Dayton from Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries also really raised the idea of hope and and how we find hope when things feel so um kind of like oppressive, like they're coming down on you and that the issues may feel too large for any one of us as an individual to deal with. So I, I really felt like those three things really grabbed the audience. And, and I'm really grateful for Susie, Carla and Kathleen for for bringing those into the conversation. Let's uh, go a little, get a little background from Susie and uh, from Carla. Susie, a little bit of background about Island Institute, what your interest is, and you're the, the director of the Center for Climate and Community Resilience within the Island Institute. Sure. Thanks, Ron. Yeah, um, I work at the Island Institute. I've been there for about 11 years, and the Island Institute is a community development organization based in Rockland, Maine, and we work with Maine's uh, island and coastal communities. Um, I direct, like you said, the Center for Climate and Community. I'm also the senior ocean scientist at the organization. More, probably most relevant to this conversation is um, my role within the, the Climate Center at the organization. And within the Climate Center, we have a few different branches, I like to call them. We have our, our climate mitigation branch, which contains most of our clean energy work. And we do work with Deer Isle Stonington on an energy transitions project funded through the Department of Energy right now. Uh, I can talk a little bit more about that later if it comes up. Um, we also have a branch that's related to adapting to climate change. Um, we're adapting to things that we're seeing already, and then we're figuring out how communities can adapt to things that we know are coming. So those things go hand in hand, kind of mitigating the impacts, but also adapting to the ones that are already here and the ones we know will be here soon. The The final branch is, is a role that we play 
up in Augusta a lot around advocacy and policy. Um, we really make sure the voices of, of remote coastal communities are amplified in Augusta and the, the state can really understand the unique um, position that many of these remote and island coastal communities are, are facing. Um, I play a role on the Maine Climate Council, the appointee with expertise in marine science on the Climate Council. I also direct or, or um, sorry, co-chair the um, Scientific and Technical Subcommittee, which is a, a part of the Maine Climate Council. And both Carl and I are also involved in the Coastal and Marine Working Group, which is part of the Maine Climate Council. So the Maine Climate Council is working to update the state's next action plan, uh, which is called Maine Won't Wait. Uh, many of you have probably seen it. The next um, version of Maine Won't Wait will be released uh, in just under a year on December 1st of 2024. So there's lots of work going on with hundreds of people around the state to update that plan and make it actionable. It's a four-year plan. So we're really focusing on things that that we can work on over the next four years to prepare Maine uh, for climate impacts all around. Thanks, Susie. Um, Carla, a little bit about um, the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries and your own role, your own background. Thanks, Ron. Um, i uh, I work for, I'm the chief scientist. I've been here for about 13 years for the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. And um, we were founded by former Commissioner of Marine Resources, uh, Robin Alden, a, a little over 20 years ago to ensure and secure our fisheries future for our coastal communities in eastern Maine. I think there's a little bit that Linda was touching on earlier, we are in a unique position where in eastern Maine, we're the two most fishing dependent counties um, in the entire eastern seaboard of the of the U.S. We're you know not just dealing with coastal climate resilience, like sea level rise and things like that, storm inundation. We're also dealing with this really unique kind of position we're in where our economy, our entire economy and social fabric is reliant on a natural resource, which is also climate dependent. And, um, and so I think we focus at Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, how that fisheries management, how that economy piece plays into our community resilience. And we started a, a program with the Northeast Fisheries Science Center and the Department of Marine Resources a few years ago called the Eastern Maine Coastal Current Collaborative, where we've started working with engaging Eastern Maine communities about what their future looks like and their dependence on fisheries. And one of the interesting things that we learned in those in, in those meetings just before COVID hit us is that coastal communities are thinking about fishery management and social resilience as one in the same. So they are in, inextricably linked in this space. And that provides us with um, unique challenges, but also very unique opportunities to be building our resilience. And so as the chief scientist, I lead that program in thinking about how um, we can't just well manage fisheries out of this you know, climate change situation. We really do have to be thinking about these in very many um, interconnected vertically and horizontally ways where each of our coastal communities need to be thinking about this together in no single community has the, the agency to really build the programs that they need. We need that advocacy at state and federal levels. And we also need to be thinking about fisheries and watching what's going on in the coast of Maine, not just thinking about our flood risks and our infrastructure risks, but what biological risks and ecosystem risks are we 
incurring, I guess, or subject to for the species that we depend on. We are a fishing community. We are fishing communities. We want fishing to be our future moving forward. So we really also think about how do we plan ahead to build uh, resilience into our economies. And um, that requires advocacy more at the federal level to be thinking about permits and access and um, detection of where those fishing opportunities are. Great. Uh, just to remind listeners, um, we're about a quarter way through our wonderful conversation that you're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're talking about town planning for climate resilience. You've just heard from uh, Carla Gunther from uh, the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. Susie Arnold is with the Island Institute. Linda Nelson is the Director of Community Development for Stonington. And of course, Kathleen Billings is the town manager. Linda, any, and I'll let Liz come in with some other questions, but Perhaps, Linda, anything you want to add in terms of what led to um, this conversation that you began to have? You're in a, in a different role than the ar- previous role with the uh, Opera House, Director of, of uh, Community Development and, and Economic Development. These go hand in hand. Um, anything else you want to say about that before we um, turn it over to, to uh, Liz? I think that um, Carla and Kathleen and Susie have all really given great voice to it. The one thing I do want to add, the connection that you just made I think the arts and culture do play a role in this because they gather people. And I think we need to look to our arts and cultural organizations to gather people. Um, We're grateful that the Stonington Opera House agreed to host these conversations. And we hope that um, in other communities, there are ways to gather people as well. These are regional conversations. We're very aware that even as we need to bring our community together, we need to link our community to other coastal communities and other fishing communities in order to survive so um, I think that these are larger conversations we need to continue. Liz, take it away. Awesome. Yeah. Susie, first, next to you, I'm so glad you brought up several things you've, you've said I'm really excited to follow up on. And one of them is Maine's climate plan, which I've been hearing about since, since it came out. And um, we have several folks here on MDI who have been really involved in that, in that council as well and, and subcommittees. But so I wondered if you could say, as having been your role in that work, since we're talking about Stonington as a as an example and a case study today, what is what is Maine's climate plan, the the first draft and the and the upcoming new draft mean for Stonington, you think? What does it mean for Stonington? Kathleen is also on the Coastal Marine Working Group with Carla and myself and about 40 other people. What's really important about having town managers on that working group is that they are bringing to the conversation the issues that communities are facing now. Um, They're bringing uh, real-time knowledge about climate impacts in communities, about how the causeway is is flooded at astronomical high tides and the seaweed has to be plowed off, how the bridge is shaken under a, a southeast wind or whatever it was, Kathleen, that you were explaining to me that morning after you and Carla had kind of kind of had a terrifying drive across the bridge in a in a um in an in a storm event that is becoming increasingly common and so i think w- what the existing plan ha- can do for stonington is to you know share the the most up to date climate science with everyone it w- one thing that's probably particularly pertinent to to stonington and how um they're tackling coastal flooding. Uh, Kathleen mentioned the the engineering assessments that have already been done. Um, the With the release of the plan back in, in 2020, 
the state adopted a commit to manage sea level rise target. So it gives communities something to plan for rather than spending a lot of time kind of debating the science and how high our sea is going to rise by 2050 and what what should we be planning for? That can take years. And that's that's held back a lot of communities in just beginning to take action. And so I think having that intermediate scenario to plan around, which is a foot and a half of sea level rise by 2050 and four feet by 2100, to have that that kind of planning, not, not target, but, but kind of planning goal in mind is one big hurdle that towns don't really have to worry about. The next step being uh, getting those engineering firms to do those local vulnerability steps to help them kind of rank what their top priority needs are. And Linda mentioned this this earlier on, and I just want to reemphasize it. I thought one of the most important things that came out of our in-person discussion <clears throat> last month up at the Opera House was really the need to have your ducks in a row as a community and, and understand where your vulnerabilities are so that when funds do come in, become available from the federal government and the state, that communities can really jump on them. And I think Stonington has really been an excellent model in taking the steps that they need to take to put them in a good position to receive those funds. So that's kind of moving a little bit beyond your question of how how the climate plan impacts Stonington. But I think, you know, ha- having really engaged town officials and nonprofits and having them understand what's in that climate action plan and how they can use that to prepare their communities has been um, phenomenally important. And I really applaud Stonington and Deer Isle for for taking taking that information and and putting it into action. That's really what uh, Mainwell Eight is all about. So, awesome, thank you. Yeah, Carla. I was just going to um, piggyback onto that. So thank you, thank you, Susie, and thank you for that question, Liz. I think one of the critical pieces that having Kathleen participate in in the Climate Council is for this next iteration. There's sort of a, you know, the first draft came out, she has those target, those planning targets. But we also have to understand that both, you know, Bar Harbor and Stonington are these kind these municipalities with a lot of capacity and a lot of experience, where many of our smaller coastal communities and fishing dependent communities don't even have a municipal structure, don't have a town manager, don't have any of this. And so Kathleen gives voice in many, in many cases to what were her hurdles. You know, she had a hurdle, but she was actually able to overcome some of those where some of these other communities don't even know that they would have these hurdles to come to those targets. We don't have the data necessarily to even begin to do those engineering studies that Susie was talking about. So we need to be understanding the why why can a town or what can we do to help places do and achieve the targets in the main won't wait climate action plan mm-hmm. and i'll just say that one uh, i'm working with machias and cutler the water level gauges mm-hmm. that they have there they're already observing that their climate projections are a foot off as much as a foot off from high water uh, predictions from any of the modeling that they've been able to do thus far so and not only is it a, a whole like the depth is different or the height of the water is different. It's also happening more frequently than what the predictions were were, um, providing. So I think it's really, really important that we work together to also collect the data to help these communities. So not only is it a policy framework and a process framework we need to inform so that communities can build their resilience, but also provide the data to do that work (laughs) well. 
Well, then, it's so that you um, think took uh, took me in a slightly different direction for where I was going to go next. So I'll go to Kathleen actually with um, some questions from from what you said earlier that I was fascinated by. So for for bigger towns with more staff and smaller towns with really limited professional staff, um, I was curious about the actions you said Stonington has already taken. And one of them was about the town meeting setting aside reserve funds for, um, was that, was that a tough sell? How, what was that process like? Actually, you know, surprisingly, because we had put all the steps in place, you know, whether it was adapting the FEMA flood maps, we adopted a comprehensive plan because we were going to have to, you know, try to access grant funding to be able to do this. You know, we did a, because of the fisheries component and the transitions and stuff, you know, um, an economic resiliency plan. And so we put all these pieces, you know, in place for this. But I think also, too, you know, the one thing that, you know, it brings to light is, is these smaller places, they need the technical assistance, either through some sort of regional planning, you know, commissions or whatever. And any funding, planning funding that we got, um, the other thing is, too, is I was put in there that, you know, and I believe this right to, you know, the depths of my soul, you know, you share this information and you be there for people because, um, yeah, I have been blessed that, you know, I've got a good staff and a board and, you know, capacity wise, we've been able to either figure out how to overcome some of these hurdles. But it's technical assistance. It's money um, to be able to do it. And it's that institutional knowledge to pass around with people. And I always feel really grateful that I can work with, you know, like all of these people on here and stuff, Island Institute and Carla. Um, I can't say how many times we've had some of these, you know, work together on some of these proposals and they work really hard to try to do this. And because of all the town planning that we've done, because my direction kind of goes in one ways and, you know, theirs is in another in the capacity and in, in a fishing based town, you know, all of their work that Kyle and Alexa and the rest of the team over there do is integral to something that I can't do. I can't do. Mm -hmm. But together, because we have all of these pieces that, you know, if they're putting together proposals, you know, they can go back and say, well, look, the town has done all of these integral things. So mm -hmm. we're able to build some resiliency into this. But that's what I really want to share. And part of that climate adaptation plan that was mentioned before, I can't say enough that we need the technical assistance for the smaller places for these assessments to move ahead of this before it moves over us. And I think also, too, you know, for, for me, um, I, I just really hope that, you know, the second round of bringing to it is how much the state needs to move ahead to, whether it's the transportation, the roads and stuff like that. And I just feel like it's gone a little bit backwards. And, you know, the, uh, you know, us trying to stay ahead of that causeway that's going under. And you're right. The flooding we're seeing here is happening a lot faster than what they predicted. So we feel the need to be just absolutely vicious to get, you know, our, you know, road connections for public safety. You know, our fire department shares people between the towns. People work back and forth. So, you know, having that Route 15 corridor for, you know, shipping $70 million worth of seafood off to the global market is everything to us. And we need the state to be a partner with us to help this. And, you know, this is what I think my role is on this for, 
be an advocate for the working waterfront and stuff like that and poke the bear where I can too. So <laughs> Carla, um, like farmers, fishermen, fisherwomen um, are seeing things on the water and they seem like they're ready to deal with these issues. What are, what are folks seeing on the water that, that has helped them be ready to take action? They don't just observe things from the water. <laughs> and I think one of the challenges and maybe unique pressure points uh, being applied to the fishery over the past few years has been a lot of political, external, economic uh, pressures as well. So that intersecting with maybe the uncertainty. I think in general, there's just been a lot of uncertainty, a lot of variation in almost any variable that they measure. So there are are ecosystem variables that they're operating under and interpreting daily in order to determine what to do with their, their gear and how to fish plus the economic variables. I mean, we're just looking at fuel prices and bait, you know, security and all kinds of things. There's, um, there's just so much uncertainty and fishermen, um, are uniquely adept at dealing with uncertainty, way more than the average human who really wants to know that they're going to have a constant paycheck and you know all of that. And so you're to, you're dealing with a population that gets up every morning gambling, you know, not knowing what's going to happen with their day. And then you add these other levels of uncertainty that they they aren't able or haven't been. Um, evolved essentially to to deal with and um and incorporate so i i think there's kind of a, a couple like different reactions in, among the fisheries so they're looking at how the the ecosystem isn't behaving according to any of the patterns that they've seen before and then they wonder okay well i can deal with this you know they can kind of deal with that uncertainty because it triggers for the fishermen that let let thrive on that uncertainty that learning that hunter, you know, um, piece of the of the equation, that triggers them. It actually gets them a little bit more excited to go out there and, and observe and figure out how to catch how to how to catch the fish, how to catch the lobster, how to, you know, adapt to the system. But those externality, those external kind of stressors make their ability to adapt and chase fish or learn how the system is changed, the ecosystem is changing. Um, it, it takes a toll. And so I think we're we're actually seeing some of that adaptive resilience in the fishery being um, stressed. And we're seeing fishermen um, and the fishing industry make different choices than we've seen them make before. I So some of that means they're going to be, you know, it's a fight or flight kind of thing where you're going to become more hard and fast in what you're doing and what you know and resist change. Or you're going to be really open to saying, okay, or you just, you know, flee the whole situation altogether. And um, we're at a critical, a critical point where I think it is up to our communities and our to, to help support the, the fishery and figuring out that there is hope, you know, to kind of bring that that forward, that there is some sense of agency, that their observations of what's going on with the natural system is critically important to understanding how our communities can sustained this economic driver for for our, our schools and for our tax base and everything. So that it is a critical time for fishermen to feel the support of the broader community and um, maybe now more than ever, honor their observations of the natural system and figure out how to incorporate them in 
um, resilience planning and managing fisheries in a more diverse suite, more of an ecosystem, like not rely on one species. Maybe we need to be uh, having more flexible fishing, fishing rules so that we can collect data as we, as we harvest, maybe um, things like, things like that. I think it's a lot more creative thinking than what we've been able to do and support in the past. Great. I just remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns on WERU. You've just heard from Carla Gunther from Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. We are also joined by Kathleen Billings, the town manager of Stonington, and uh, Linda Louise Nelson, director of community development in Stonington, and Susie Arnold, director of uh, the Center for Climate and Community Relations within the Island Institute. Um, uh, I, th- I think, uh, Linda, you had something to Can say. Can I a few jump minutes in, Ron? Yes, go ahead. Go yeah. ahead, Liz. Well, just I have a question for Linda, uh, in addition to whatever she had wanted to say a minute ago. I'm super glad Carla just said um, that um, something that was my understanding of part of uh, what her organization works on, which is uh, or has been working on, which is um, what helping support um, fisheries in addition to lobster as as climate changes that might be because it changes over time. There used to be other fisheries that were bigger and they have de- they declined and come and go and lobster. Um, will never go away, but but might might not be what it is today. It, you know, it changes over time, and so I, that occurs to me as a parallel with some of what Linda's doing with the town that um, in encouraging economic development in addition to commercial fishing. Um, commercial fishing is never going to go away, but but what else can be can be cultivated alongside it? Is that is that right? Uh, well, thanks, Liz. I mean, we we you know we pursue economic and community development from a standpoint of kind of holistic community, right? And one of the things Carla just said that I think is so important is that our fishermen need to know that we are supporting the fishery, and um, because there's a lot of pressure, and it's not just climate based to to against the fishery. Um, during the pandemic, a lot of money moved into these coastal communities that is non-fishing money. And, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure uh, posed by gentrification, by by property value increases, by the lack of housing um, and, and the lack of um, labor that comes with that lack of affordable housing. So when we think about our economic resiliency strategy, which we did pass in Stonington last May, we think about and we want to make this really clear, and I think it helps our fishermen in terms of their resilience to know that Stonington wants to stay a fishing community, that our number one goal is to be a working waterfront and a fishing community, first and foremost. And so, you know, if we can add that little bit of hope for our fishermen um, in the situation that that Carla was talking about in terms of ha- how they face every day and the kind of innovations they have to face – I think that's super important to do because there is a lot of pressure. You know, we read all the time in places, you know, national publications, Stonington is a seasonal community. Stonington is not a seasonal community. Stonington is a year-round fishing community, and our goal is to sustain that. So when we talk about economic and community development, we talk about how do we sustain that year-round fishing community, and housing is a big piece of it, okay? I mean, that's the building block number one. So we're working on how we how we return housing to local year-round families. That in turn helps sustain our schools, 
which are a big piece of a year-round community. It helps. And so, and then we have to work on healthcare because a year-round community needs schools. It needs healthcare. So, you know, we have to have these building blocks and we have been lucky to have these building blocks. Stonington has had a, um, you know, a community medical center for, for several generations now. We've had a dentist locally on the island. We are the second largest island in Maine in terms of population, um, you know, coming right after Mount Desert and Bar Harbor. And um, and we need these resources there. So our job is a real struggle right now to sustain those. With the way healthcare is changing, with the way property values have changed, um, and the way real estate has changed during the pandemic, we've had to shift some policies and we have to put some th- different kinds of things in place that not everybody will like, but everybody needs to remember that our number one goal is to stay a year-round fishing community. And those are the pieces we need to do that. That's awesome. Speaking of sharing resources, is that that economic resiliency strategy, was was it passed by the town meeting? Uh, it it was passed by this adopted by the select select board, in, and in, I would I, I, I'm sure lots of other towns would be really excited to read it and 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 get ideas. That's- it's great. We worked with nationally recognized Camoyne Associates on it, and more than sixty of our local residents were involved in focus groups and interviews in terms of creating it. And it is on our website, so we can put the URL out there at some point so people can find it. But basically, we're StoningtonMaine.org. Awesome. Liz, did you want to uh, just check in with folks about what climate resilience looks like? Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Um, was my last on my list was, and uh, Carla really got got my thinking opened up in a in a whole new way, which was really cool. But I'd love it if everybody would weigh on in on this. So so maybe Susie next. Both Susie and Carla um, so far have started to help try to answer this question for me, which is what on earth do we mean when we talk about climate resilience? I only ever see it in the names of grant grants. <laughs> like I don't know what it means. Um, and so Susie talked about the parts of the the center that they have at the Island Institute, which include mitigation. That means what do we do to keep uh, to to try to keep it from getting worse? Um, I think adaptation and and advocacy are those are those the branches i right susie you got it okay and then carla said and this is much more fuzzy but also really kind of fun to to juggle um she said community resilience is um well i i wrote down um, things the government has to deal with. The government has to deal with things that the natural world is is doing in terms of flooding or or infrastructure impacts. And the economy um, has to deal, uh, a natural resource economy has to deal with biological and ecological risk. And also there's economic resiliency in terms of what the economic activity itself is. So that's that's still not a definition, but those are all the kind of mis- uh, moving pieces. Does does anybody want to want to weigh in? <laughs> I don't know. Have, have I missed some moving pieces? Well, I I guess um I would just say that I think the government and individuals at all levels are having to deal with this um and and all the factions of climate we'll we'll call it climate resilience. So 
NOAA, uh, the, North, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they have their own definition of coastal resilience. So that's the other thing is you can use the word resilience and add it to any word in front of it, and it'll have a very different meaning, um, especially as far as strategies to achieve it. So for NOAA, the definition of coastal resilience is pretty much that hard infrastructure. So that's flooding, that's habitat loss, that's um, it's the, the, the threat of climate change in the sense of mostly rising sea level and storm surge. That's the coastal resilience. But here in, in Eastern Maine and many Maine towns, we have this other piece of climate resilience, which is that ecosystem, those biological pieces, such as temperature, ocean acidification, low oxygen, eutrophication. Like we have all those other things that are associated with climate change. So for us, because we're fishing dependent and we need those natural resources for our economy, coastal or climate resilience is really our our strategy moving forward um, because those two things are so inextricably linked. So we have to be thinking about how temperature, increased rainfall, how that storm surge brings nutrients out into the you know nearshore environment and can smother our clam flats, how it is eroding our clam flats and really, you know, eradicating one of our number, you know, what number two, number three fisheries in the state of Maine. And so I, I, we have to be thinking about that here. It isn't, it isn't as easy as talking about urban infrastructure where it's like, okay, let's make sure our pier doesn't collapse um, or that the seawall is able to hold back the rising water. We have to think about the ecosystem here in a different way um, because it contributes to our community fabric and our economy so so differently. Awesome. Kathleen, do you have anything to add about what how how resilience gets defined? Having worked on this for a long time now? Well, I mean, to me, you know, the the two different things just in my capacity, you know, working, it's, you know, the adaptation to me is, you know, and, and I don't know everything in the world, but it's the actual of looking at, okay, we have a problem here coming, we have a problem there coming, you know, um, is this a big problem? Is this a little problem? Try to triage, what will there be effects of it and stuff like that? You know, and I'm just kind of like using for an example road, you know, am I have I have got a road that's really imperative that everybody uses or do I have just a little small road that, you know, I can bump up a culvert for the flooding or the washing away or, you know, the marsh is coming over it or whatever it is and how many people. So, I mean, that's sort of like that. OK, you know, that is it acceptable, not acceptable, fix it or not fix it or whatever. The adaptation is looking at something just like I mentioned about Marsh down to Oceanville. We have a huge project going down there because Oceanville is going to be cut in half, you know, soon. And it's and it's coming sooner than what we think it is with the projections, you know. So the adaptation for me is, you know, and, and Linda um, and uh, we had another partner, uh, Alan Krantz, did a great job. We got one of those northern border grants and you know, to do that. So the adaptation is 
you know, getting the plan, the engineer, which we had reserves that paid for that. We got the northern borders to ensure because that's a huge road for us down there. A lot of commerce, you know, it's one of our, you know, bigger harbors. So it was imperative to be able to start, you know, adapting that, finding the fund and then building it and then, you know, building that resilience, you know, in. So it's like a two prong thing for me. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but that's, you know, how my mind works with it and interprets it. Yeah, that's that's great. And and it helps clarify um, for maybe Linda what Carla just said about, okay, um, the the water chemistry, nutrients in the water uh, change the clam flats. And and you said uh, social patterns with COVID changed the housing stock ownership there that's kind of a, a, a similar process something washed over the community and how is the community going to be resilient to it so that those i think the event that you all put to, together in december and why this is such a cool conversation is that economic and community resilience and the the climate resilience that is more sciency um re- really are parallel projects Linda, going back to the the forum that you folks um, held in December, what else did you learn? You talked um, earlier about the need for pre-planning, the whole role of fisheries, and and this notion of hope. Um, Anything else that you want to kind of uh, alert our listeners to to, in terms of things to be aware of as they think about these issues in their own communities? Well, you know... um... And I'd like, I think Susie had something she wanted to say there. And I don't know if Susie, are you, are you, are you there? Is it? it yeah, is I'm, it, I'm here. Yeah. 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 I did. I, I, this is just a fascinating conversation. And so I, I'm, I, I wanted to speak a little bit about the, the definition of resilience and c- try to tie it all together. If, if I could, if I, if I could try. Awesome. Thanks. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think when you look in the literature, the definition broadly of resilience is the ability to bounce back after a trauma, right? So this could apply to all sorts of, um, you know, from a town infrastructure, it's the ability of a town to bounce back after a storm event. If you're talking about a, a you know, a child, it's that the child's ability to bounce back after like a adverse childhood experience. So resilience can be applied to all sorts of things. Um, and I think, um, Hope is really critical to bouncing back um, in in any of these cases, and so that kind of brings us back to the science of hope, which we discussed a little bit at the December sixth event. And um, you know, hope is more than a feeling; it's 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 an actionable thing, and it, it includes three different things. It includes um, having a goal, having agency thinking, and having pathways thinking. So, ability to to achieve your goal, and so in listening to um, to Linda talking about, you know, what Stonington has identified as a shared value is that, you know, fishing is this this really important thing to the community. Um, it's been identified by the community as a, a goal of something that it needs to preserve in the face of adversity, in the face of climate change and all the ep- economic stressors facing the community. Um, so you could you could say that Stonington's goal is to remain a fishing community. Um, and and the other two pieces of of achieving hope or, or having hope in the face of of all of these adverse events is having agency and the knowledge of what to do to achieve your goal. So having events um, that improve social connectedness, like the December 6th conversation, like the one coming up, I think you said it's on February 7th. Um, 
it connects the community, it builds agency amongst the community members and gives them the knowledge that they need to achieve their goal. And then lastly, you need to have uh, pathways to achieve their goal. And I think that's where, where Maine Won't Wait and the Climate Action Plan can come in. It, it provides those resources and gives communities the tools. Like, you know, we talked a lot about um, lack of capacity and people power in these small communities. So one positive thing to come from Maine Won't Wait was the Community Resilience Partnership, which is the Governor's Office of Policy Innovation in the Futures program to increase capacity to tackle climate in these small communities. So it provides um, it provides service providers. It provides a little bit of people power, and it pr- then provides a little bit of funding for to for communities to tackle their climate priorities. So, so that's an example of uh, the pathways thinking. That's the final step in in achieving hope. So, I think um, as I'm listening to this conversation, um, thinking about you know how hope really is a critical piece of. Um, a critical piece to maintain in the face of all this adversity, including climate. And it it really is essential in being resilient and in so many different ways. So Linda, I didn't mean to cut in on what you were about to say, but I just, I saw, I saw kind of a way to bring it all together with, and I, I know you wanted to touch on, on the science of hope and the importance of um, taking action and, and, and maintaining hope in, um, in the situation. Yeah, exactly. Susie. I mean, that was just incredible. Um, and this idea that hope is an actionable thing, I think, is something that's very important for all of our listeners and all of our community members to to recognize. I mean, because there's a part to play for every individual and there's a part to play for individuals joined together as community. Like, it's not enough to just, you know, recycle our own stuff, right? That's one step. And then the second step is how does that recycling work in our community at the community level, right? And what are the costs there? So in fact, that's going to be our next topic on February 7th is, um, and which is very related to, to this whole conversation and to climate change and to Maine won't wait, which is, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, compost. How, how do we improve our impact in our communities, right? In, in these ways where we have so much material to, work with, let's say, <laughs> so much material to get rid of, so much waste to reduce. So so it's an adjoining conversation. But mostly what I wanted to say about that definition of hope you gave, Susie, is that I think, you know, I think planning gets a bad rap. I think plans like Maine Won't Wait sometimes get a bad rap because people don't understand the actionability of planning. And I think what Kathleen has done with the town of Stonington is a great example of why planning is so important. I mean, we even kind of degraded planning at the state level when the state planning office was disbanded, right? And, you know, people, you know, I'm a nonprofit consultant. I work with a lot of nonprofits. People think, oh, a strategic plan, you go through the process and then it like sits over here and it doesn't impact anything over here. But planning done the right way, um, that is actionable, that takes hope into account, that sets goals and gives everybody agency toward the realization of that plan and then finds the pathways to make that so, that's really the power of planning and the power of having a comprehensive plan that's really good and has teeth in it, an economic resiliency strategy that you actually use. I mean, these are our tools on that path toward agency and 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 results 
and change, you know, and they are the tools that we have at our disposal. So Kathleen has said over and over again, and I think it is why Stonington is such a great case study for this, that, you know, putting these plans in place, doing the planning work, then gives us the ability to seek out the pathway. And the pathway is about human resources and it's about financial resources. Right now, the federal government has created a large pool of financial resources that we have not usually had available. So kudos to them because you can't have a plan like Maine won't wait and not have financial resources behind it. You know, um, because we can't do this work, we cannot raise Oceanville Road without $2 million. That's not in the town's capacity. We can't rebuild our fish pier without millions of dollars. The town of Stonington has a budget that's, you know, slightly under $2 million a year or around $2 million a year. I mean, these are huge infrastructure projects in which we need partnership with the state and partnership with the federal government in order to achieve them. And I think why people get frustrated is they often don't see the pathway, right? The pathway isn't clear or the resources actually aren't there, right? So there can be a lot of talk about mitigating climate change. And if the resources aren't there on the state side or on the federal side to make these happen, that's when people get frustrated and people get resentful. So I think in Stonington, we're able to show the role of government. We're able to show how it can be a positive partner with, you know, private enterprise and with the public sector. Um, but it all depends on where that money's flowing. Well, we've got about five minutes um, left, a little bit less. Um, maybe each of you could say maybe one thing that you think another community besides Stonington might consider. Um, and as they think about these issues, where might they get some help? And, you know, then um, uh, close with with uh, what are your hopes for um, this this kind of work? Uh, Linda, let's start with you. Where where should other communities go to to get some help or to to make a start? And what's your hope for this work? I do think it's about coming together and talking about things and people engaging and participating um, too often people like to kind of shoot at their town government or say taxes are too high or, you know, disagree with the selectmen or, you know, they have better ways of doing things or whatever it is that they have, but they're not there at the table and they're not there, you know, really understanding how things work and participating. So I encourage people, there's a lot to learn and it's actually a lot of fun um, to join with your community and to know. So that's what I would say. Great. Susie, what's your, what's your, short piece of advice and any hopes to have in this work going forward? Um, I guess short piece of advice would be um, to encourage towns to network with one another. Um, each community is unique. Um, everyone will identify different, different values for what their, their core values of their community are, but there's probably a lot of overlap that can be gleaned from, from each, from each other. So there's no need to reinvent the wheel necessarily. Um, so a lot can be learned from communities, like we said, like Stonington. So I guess my hope would be for um, increased information sharing amongst communities in Maine. Great. Carla, again, very briefly. Um, thank you, Ron. I I guess uh, I think maybe Susie stole my idea um, <laughs> or, or my sentiment in that I think, yeah, I mean, and, and one of the things that came from our December um, chat is that you may feel as a community member, you may feel like you don't have anything to bring to this, you know, seemingly highly technical conversation. But 
um, everyone has something that they can bring to the table. And so I think, and to bring to the discussion and, you know, as, as Linda was saying, the arts um, is another whole kind of gathering element of things. And so I think that that is one, that's my hope is that we can kind of continue the conversation and that everyone can get involved. Great. And Kathleen, the last word to you, um, advice for other towns and your hope for this work going forward. Um, I think, it, you know, it's the same thing. You know, reach out to other towns. The other thing is, is, uh, you know, there are agencies like Hancock County Planning Commission. Um, a ma- the town is a member of that. And, you know, there, there's a lot of technical assistance. You know, they're bumping up, you know, trying to get planners, young planners with a lot of energy and stuff. That is really good to see. That's a resource for towns to go to. There's other planning commissions or KV COGS or anything else that's out there. Um, and I highly, you know, recommend other towns seek out that. The other thing is, too, is, you know, what I would like to see is more flexibility within the fisheries and, you know, um, start looking at, you know, these old ways of thinking and regulating and everything else. They're done and over with and they need to be thinking because the water is changing and fishing is changing and we can't go back on what it was before the old fights and everything else. This is a new day, new deal. And, you know, start thinking differently. Thank you so much. We've come to the end of an hour uh, very quickly. Uh, Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our program can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for new topics, please email us at news at weru.org. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks once again to our guests in the studio, Kathleen Billings, town manager of Stonington, Susie Arnold of the Island Institute, Carla Gunther with the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, and Linda Nelson, who is the director of community development in Stonington. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Joel Mann for engineering our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and The Groove Shop from 6 to 8. Liz Graves and I are producers and hosts for Talk of the Towns. This is Ron Beard wishing you a good afternoon. Mm-hmm.